Hi, everyone. Before we start, I want to share a message from our supporter on the podcast, Charles Sturt University. We talk a lot about climate and environmental science on this podcast and some of the amazing work women are doing in these fields. If you're looking to learn more about this and potentially thinking about pivoting your career in this direction to help in solving complex environmental challenges, then check out the Graduate Certificate Environmental Management at Charles Sturt University. It is a short course giving you specialist knowledge about conservation, natural resources or water resources. Start now and you could be upskilled in less than six months, gaining a certificate that will provide credit towards a master's. Check out more at their website, study.csu.edu.au forward slash graduate dash certificate. Now to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. I am the co-founder of Agenda Media, the publisher behind Women's Agenda, and I'm with my fellow co-founder, Tyla Lambert. Hello. So on the agenda today, we will be looking at the announcement from Thursday regarding consent education in schools, the Rocky Horror Show television interview that occurred over the weekend, the four-day work week, Oscars, and much more. Thank you for listening. So, Tyler, I'd love to bring my ukulele into our conversation today. I'm not bad on the ukulele. Can you play it better than Morrison? Yes, I can. (laughs) (laughs) It isn't hard. I might say it's also not that hard to play the ukulele. So I think maybe my five-year-old could probably do a better job, but uh, we will get to that interview shortly because it was an interview that did feature a ukulele and some other tragic happenings and words shared and various other bits and pieces. But a topic for later on in this conversation. So what was your win this week? I had a couple of wins this week. One I thought was really cool actually, and it comes out of Hollywood, which we know isn't always particularly well known for wins for women. Um, But for the first time in Oscars history, three women will be hosting the awards this coming March. So Amy Schumer, Regina Hall and Wanda Sykes have been named as the hosts of the 94th Oscars ceremony. And that was confirmed this week. All of them have kind of spoken out about what it means. Schumer said it was just an honour to be performing with those legends and also said, you know, we want to get people ready to have a good time and it's been a while and it has been a while. You know, obviously this ceremony will go ahead in its proper form, free from COVID restrictions, and it's just really nice to see that those three really talented, brilliant, hilarious women will be leading the the charge of the Oscars because we have so many male hosts and they don't always do the best job. No, they don't. So, yeah, we've seen where women do a really successful job of that. So nice to finally be catching on. You have a second win, but don't you? I heard a plural there. What's your second win? So second win is around consent education, which you mentioned in the intro of this podcast. And the fact that it's become mandatory in all schools from 2023. And this has been a really long campaign led by Chanel Contos, who launched the consent education petition many months ago. And basically, you know, a lot of victim survivors have been leading this campaign. And it's just great to see that there have actually been This new curriculum will roll out in schools during 2023 and it will incorporate comprehensive consent education, including an understanding of gendered stereotypes, coercion and power imbalances. 
as I said, that's after a petition led by Contos that had 44,000 signatures and it had more than 6,700 testimonies of sexual assault survivors. So I think it's just a really powerful move by schools and it shows that there has been, you know, widespread recognition of this issue and, you know, widespread willingness to do more from that perspective. And I think it will go a long way. You know, I think looking back on when I was at high school, would this have made a difference in the way that, you know, young men felt they could act towards um, young women? And I absolutely think it would. I think we just need to have open conversations about this and there needs to be more information and education around it. So congratulations to Chanel and everyone that was involved in that process. Yeah, I was really happy to see that, especially just somebody so young, somebody who was able to move forward on that initiative. I mean, she only sent that post a year ago and already she's become a really well-known figure and name, certainly amongst our network and many more Australians out there. And that she got such a big response immediately and then also used that to inspire a much bigger network so that we were actually having this national conversation And to see that, you know, every education minister has unanimously moved on that a year later, like that's, that's an extraordinary result. And I I don't think I completely understood how lacking, not just consent education, but um, any kind of education around healthy relationships was actually lacking in schools until I read, I read a piece by Bree Lee in the Saturday paper recently, which we will link to, and which she's actually spoken to on a a 7am podcast where she's basically spoken out the essay. But she talks about an experience where she went to a school and she'd been invited to talk to the girls in the school about safety and sexual assault and things like that. And then meanwhile, the boys were getting a separate male speaker who was there talking. I think it was about more general mental health. And a girl in her section said, why aren't the boys in here? Why is it only us who are receiving this information? And it got to the point that Brie basically said, well, yeah, this isn't right. And she was actually invited back to give the same talk to the boys. And I just thought that's so interesting that that is actually occurring at the moment where in these co-ed schools, girls and boys would actually be separated for such conversations, but also that not, not just separated, but separated and have completely different conversations where the boys aren't receiving any of what the girls are hearing about. But then also you wonder what happens then in the single sex schools as well, where again, this is so segregated and is the focus only on mental health of boys, which is obviously still important, very important, or are they still getting some of the messages that more girls are getting in these schools as well? So we will link to that story. I think it's a really positive move. And as you said, there just hasn't been enough done around this issue at all. So, you know, hopefully this is a bit of a turning point. Okay, so you shared two wins. So I'm going to share two wins as well. They will be quick. The first one is uh, for the NRL occurring tonight. I believe Madeline is writing on this as we speak right now, but two women will make history, Belinda Sharp and Casey Badger. So they will both be officiating from the middle in in tonight's pre-season trial matches at Leichhardt Oval. History, it's great to see that more women are being recognised and getting these opportunities to work as referees and it puts them one step closer 
towards uh, being able to take control of an NRL Telstra Premiership match, which hopefully will happen sooner rather than later. They only have uh, 15 years of experience, so I feel like they should be given that opportunity. So um, well done to Belinda Sharp and Casey Badger. I think like we talk about male-dominated environments and that sort of thing, I have to say, that is a tough one. So amazing to see that this shift is happening and it very possible but that they'll be controlling a premiership match very very soon my second win also relates to a male-dominated environment and somebody who has uh, managed to sustain a career for a very long time in that environment and it is senator maurice payne who has this week become the longest serving female senator in australian history as well as the longest serving female parliamentarian to serve in a single chamber and i quote that from uh, Scott Morrison's tweet, who has tweeted about it, describing Payne as my dear friend. Uh, congratulations to Senator Payne. I'm not, I mean, I'm not particularly keen on the work that she's been doing on the uh, women's portfolio, uh, or perhaps I should rephrase that. I don't believe the role of Minister for Women should be a side gig, which it has very much been for Payne, given she is the Foreign Affairs Minister. I don't believe those ministries can be held together and I don't think that we've seen enough work in the women's portfolio but I mean a a pretty amazing achievement Uh, she entered politics back in well she sorry she entered the senate back in 1997 and you know we know how tough it is for women in politics we hear it every day every week particularly for women in the Liberal Party so well done to Senator Maurice Payne. Yes and let's hope that that doesn't come back to bite Scott Morrison in the butt because he has uh, declared that women are his close friends in the party before and subsequently (laughs) we've learned the relationship is not as cosy as he may allude to um but yes no congratulations to Maurice Payne that is a very significant Scott Morrison would never actually say something that isn't true so I don't think Mm -hmm. again you're being very fair No, I'm not, probably. <laughs> which Okay, that leads us into our first topic. So let's talk about the interview from Sunday night, which featured Scott Morrison and Jenny Morrison uh, speaking with uh, 60 Minutes. It also featured a ukulele. And you wrote about this, noting some of the finer points of this interview. So oh. take us through it. I know it's been a few days, but we felt like it was a conversation that needed to be shared. The finer points of this interview, yes. Um, that is one way to frame it. I just thought it was an opportunity for the Prime Minister to be open, to be honest, to be candid through a commercial network, which, you know, obviously he is having access to a huge audience through that medium. And what actually transpired was really embarrassing and a bit hopeless. And I've written a piece, but there were several moments in it where I was just head scratching and and at one point actually yelling at my TV because his response was so lacklustre. Like from the beginning when they were talking about the Morrison's decision to go to Hawaii during the 2019 bushfires and he literally didn't speak that entire segment. He let Jenny lead that whole conversation And it seemed as though that was just a unilateral decision that she'd made to make their family go to Hawaii, which I just thought was 
outrageous that he at no point stepped in to back her up and say, look, it was a bad decision. I can't undo it. But yeah, he showed no accountability during that point. The other couple of moments that I found really so frustrating to to listen to and watch um, was Jenny Morrison's I guess, assessment of Grace Tame's conduct during the Australian of the Year ceremony event that went on at the Lodge uh, a week ago. And she really didn't note any of Tame's huge achievements over this period. I, I don't know if that was an editing decision. Maybe she did. But there certainly wasn't any kind of... um any kind of mention of of the huge contribution that Grace Tame has made um, and, and her rationale for not wanting to stand there and not wanting to smile um, through this kind of publicity stunt of a photo shoot with the Prime Minister. And, you know, Grace Tame has spoken so eloquently about her reasoning there and, and why it would be incredibly hypocritical to do that given the work that she's been doing. But Jenny Morrison's, I guess, assessment of that situation was that that Tame was, um, you know, hadn't shown manners and respect and and even though she would want her own daughters to be fierce and independent, she'd expect them to to be able to show that. I think that that was a really worrying um, explanation from both of them And, and, again, Scott Morrison kind of just let, Jenny take the lead there and kind of smiled smugly while she was talking about it. And the other part that I found really, really grating was when Carl Stefanovic, who was the interviewer, asked Morrison about whether or not he was an empathetic person and that that was the question that Australians really wanted to ask him because there have been so many examples, so many issues that have arisen where he hasn't really clearly demonstrated to the public the perception is that he is not a particularly compassionate or empathetic human. Um, Whether we look at the the case around Brittany Higgins or the bushfires or the women's reckoning in general, there have been so many issues there that have arisen. And Morrison's defence of himself was that, of course, of course he feels what everyone feels, of course there's more that lies beneath him, And he said, I said at the start of the pandemic, I've worn out the carpet on the side of my bed, particularly down in Canberra, where I've spent most of the pandemic on my knees, praying and praying, praying not just for our response, but praying for those who are losing loved ones, praying for those who couldn't go to family funerals, praying for those who were exhausted, praying for the young men and women I was sending into aged care centres. And I just thought... It was the most tone-deaf response. Here he's had this position of leadership in which he could have acted to make things easier on everyone. We didn't want a Prime Minister on his knees praying. Anyone can pray. Scott Morrison has been in this privileged position of being able to lead us and to make those core decisions, and he hasn't been able to do that. And also, we live in a secular country. It's a pretty bizarre thing for a Prime Minister to just say that on behalf of everyone, that he's praying and he believes in miracles and the second coming and whatever, and that's not what we need. We, we just need, we needed leadership, we needed clear decisions, we needed empathy, 
we needed someone to to be around um and he has failed from my position from where I'm sitting he has he has failed on a lot of that throughout this entire period so I found the interview really frustrating (laughs) and I don't think I was alone given the response on social media and across Twitter um but yeah look it was again another missed opportunity for for Morrison and then, you know, as you noted, it ended in a particularly embarrassing ukulele performance uh, while he sat around with Stefanovic and his family and made his poor teenage daughters uh, sing to his ukulele playing, in which he didn't even know the lyrics. So it was, uh, it was pretty tragic. Yeah, I mean, that whole sort of effort to humanise himself at the end there and to come across as a family man, to come across as a religious man, a man of faith, come across as hopefully not a musician, but uh, (laughs) to come across as relatable. I don't know. Are there many dads who sit around playing the ukulele at the table to their teenage daughters? I don't know, maybe to little kids or something. I don't know that that was that relatable. I don't know where that advice came from that that would ever be a good idea. Um, The praying comment. I like I just there's something like that's just it's uh, it's just offensive like you're it's a secular country that shouldn't come into it I I don't care if you fine good I'm like if he needs to pray that is fine but don't use that as a way of describing what you're doing or how much you cared because you could have demonstrated how much you cared by making different decisions during that process and I might add like talks about wearing out the carpet I dare somebody to go and take a look at that carpet and we'll actually (laughs) see the truth there as well but I also, you know, as you've noted, so I don't mean to backtrack over everything that you said, but like Jenny Morrison, I mean, the fact that she was brought out kind of as a shield to answer the questions that were tough, like to answer the questions, like you said, about the trip to Hawaii, as if he had no input in it, she took the sole blame for that. And she said that she made that decision for for her kids. Fine. You know, he's the prime minister. I'm sure he could have said, hey, I can't get there this time. You know, again, I know, I appreciate that. I'm a prime minister for a few years and this is what it is. I sign up for this job. I mean, I'm sure there are many benefits to that role coming to the family in other ways that, you know, maybe their father can't be there for every holiday. I'm sorry, that's the way it is with big jobs. That's the way with jobs that that you and I have as well. Sometimes we can't always be on the same holidays or the same work life things with our kids or with our families. We sometimes have to separate running businesses and having careers. And especially the further up you go into leadership, that's kind of the story of life in a way. And I know it not always ideal and we'd all love to go and spend that week in Hawaii but sometimes shit happens back in your home that you need to tend to yeah so maybe the rest of your family could go there you stay behind but don't wheel out your wife to take the blame for making that decision as if she forced you onto that plane to get there and as if she forcefully kept you there as well because that just wasn't what happened and then the fact that he brought her out as well to answer the question like she answered the questions on grace tame and it was left to her to talk about grace tame's um, you know supposed lack of manners and that she should have had manners coming into their home etc so which by the way is a taxpayer funded home the lodge is not your home jenny and scott like i'm sorry it's not it is fully publicly paid for uh, Can I yeah. move on to another topic? Oh, I could rant about this one all day. Yeah, yeah, maybe we should move on. All right, okay, so this one's a little bit more fun. 
this one does relate to the, I guess, holidays and things like that. And sometimes we can't always be around our families and things, but we wanted to talk about the four day work week because it has been getting a lot of attention this week and it has been getting a lot of attention for years. And it's something that we've followed for years as well. Um, particularly say five, six years ago when it actually wasn't that common and it was quite a big deal for companies to come forward and say that they were trialing a four-day work week. We'd publish a story on that and everyone would click on it and read it because they're like, wow, I want to work for a company where everybody works a four-day work week. It's not like some special thing that you go and apply for to work part-time where you get four-fifths of the salary for actually working 100% of the role. Like you actually get the same salary and you work four days instead of five. Well, there's different models of it. You might do the 30-hour week in different ways. You might finish it two each day. Whatever it is, people want to read those stories. They've always been intrigued, probably less so since the pandemic because um, it's opened up a few more options around flexibility. But it's getting attention now because, well, particularly this week, because Belgium has just introduced a reform package that will see employees able to request a six-month trial of working a four-day week and then choose their preference if they continue that at the end of the trial. A lot of other countries have made introductions around varying forms of this. The United Arab Emirates has introduced a four-and-a-half-day week. Mercer Research found in 2021 that around, I think it was more than a quarter of employees are now offering some type of option around compressed work weeks. And all of this obviously comes back to the fact that, you know, we're kind of in this Monday to Friday structure, this archaic structure that was introduced by Henry Ford's industrial era. It was formally introduced in Australia in the 1940s. And it came back to this idea that you'd work eight hours, there'd be eight hours for leisure, there'd be eight hours for sleep, and that would be Monday to Friday. And of course, we know that's not life anymore. First of all, two adult household both are usually working now or at least working part-time, full-time or some kind of form of that. Uh, We've got kids in school. Schools don't align with these different work hours. And we're also putting in a lot of work outside of traditional work hours as well. So a lot of talk about the benefits of the four-hour week. Studies in Iceland show that it doesn't reduce productivity. They've been studying that for quite a while now. Studies also show that there's improvements in well-being, Uh, Studies also show that there's improvements in how people can get in physical activity and how they can go and experience things and get rewarded through experiences as opposed to seeking rewards through buying actual things. Tyler, do you think we need to talk about the four-day work week anymore or has the pandemic kind of shifted everything enough that people have come to expect already more flexibility around how they work? I think definitely people are expecting more flexibility around how they work and they should. Um, This is one of the better things to have come out of the pandemic is that, you know, we now know that people can work in a way that they've never had to work before, you know, from home um, with managing various competing priorities. um, And for the most part, we've heard lots of really positive stories of employers being, you know, supportive of that. Um, So I think that we need to move to a model where employees are having these conversations with their employers from the outset about what works for them, what suits their needs, what suits their family's needs. And I think it's a really positive thing. You know, we've, we've had conversations with lots of our staff about, you know, what they need and what kind of flexibility works for them. And I just think, you know, if you make things easier on people to live their lives, then they are also going to be the most productive at work. And 
I am a staunch believer that, you know, working nine till five is actually, or, or even longer hours than that, is not the most productive way to work. You know, I often find myself like, you know, waking up at 5 o'clock and we've talked about this, like, and, and wanting to just get a couple of hours in then and then by three o'clock I'm absolutely like tanked and my head doesn't work. So I'll go and have a swim. And like, I think that that's good to to be able to do when, you know, we have young families, lots of other people have various other things in their lives, whether it's caring responsibilities or just, you know, social things that they want to do or um, extra study. People live different lives and we cannot be expected to work in this one kind of mode approach because it, it doesn't work anymore. And I think it's a really positive thing. So yes, um, definitely embracing the four-day work week and whatever else variations of flexibility that we can get to. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing. I think that it, it still needs the flexibility. And one thing with the four-day work week is that it does actually suggest you get a day off and to have it company-wide also doesn't disadvantage you for having that day off in that week. So that's where I think it's important because you can kind of get flexibility, but then you're still sort of available or working all the time where you're still kind of expected to answer to emails or things on those days off. Whereas if it is a little bit more formalized, then it may actually work for people that they can use that day to you know, take a three-day weekend, to actually take a break, to actually get things organized at home while maybe their kids are at school, whatever it is. But then at the same time, I also don't want to just kind of push people into this idea that we all then move to a four-day work week because the whole thing about the five-day work week is that it hasn't been that flexible. So are we just kind of making it a little bit easier but not addressing some of the other issues like school hours and other things that kind of pop up as well. Um, I might mention here, and we wrote about this last week, was New South Wales Premier Dominique Perrottet's announcement of the Women's Economic Expert Panel. And I actually think they've put together quite a good panel here that he says will guide government policies around breaking down um, structural gender barriers. And he had actually put out that idea about shaking up the school day about kind of moving away from this 9 to 3 p.m thing that doesn't necessarily work for kids like you know we have our own preferences to working it's the same with kids but also obviously that's really tough on parents who are working full-time and have to like then go and look at before school care or after school care or as many activities they can can to keep their kids occupied during those times so interesting I think lots of things are afoot I hope that at the end of this, everyone is able to access some kind of additional flexibility that doesn't kind of come with conditions, whether those conditions are less pay or less career opportunities or whatever it is, um, but that we also think of this as a holistic change, making note of that people have caring responsibilities and other things going on that may not perfectly align with some of these work week shifts. So, yes. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, and no ukuleles on that day off. So <laughs> thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. You can find all these stories and more at our website where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter and find out exactly what's going on just before lunchtime. Until next week, thank you for listening.